What are you listening to? You're listening to the Get to Know Podcast. What's happening guys, this is Liam and you're locked into the Get To Know podcast. If you're listening right now, big up yourself, I appreciate you. Shout out everyone that checked out the last episode with Vital, that was a big one. Shout out the regular listeners as always. Shout out the first time listeners, big up yourself. And shout out to all of the people following on the socials. I don't know what the opposite of a shout out is, but whatever that is, Virgin Media, fix up. I was told between 12 and 6 that there would be work going on. Woke up at half 10 and it's still a bit faulty. Alright, well I'll go on for that. And then for the rest of the day, it's just been very temperamental. I was meant to do an episode with someone and I had to reschedule it, so... But yeah, keep an eye out for that one. That's a, it's a good one still. But on to this week's guest. This guy's a big deal still. <laughs> so this person tried to unseat Boris Johnson in the last general election. So as soon as I saw that, I was like, yo. I remember at the time I was like, yo, I was following this guy. I was very, I was very uh, invested mainly just because Boris Johnson's a pagan and I'd have loved for him to become the first Prime Minister to be unseated or first sitting Prime Minister. It didn't quite happen but it was still a great story nonetheless and you know I really wanted to get him on here. Like big up himself just because he made it very easy you know he's probably the most high profile guest I've had but I emailed him he was like here's my number and then we arranged it pretty quickly and we made some good content so here it is this is Ali Milani it's the get to know podcast and I am joined by Labour councillor Ali Milani Ali how you doing I'm keeping well man keeping well thank you very much uh for having me excited to to have a chat this is uh I think we're all in unique times so it's good to to be able to have this digital conversation with you yeah, exactly. And I'm really excited to have you on. I with you, you know, the first time I ever saw you and you know what was happening, I kind of felt invested immediately. So um yeah, it's good to kind of break you know, have the opportunity to break that down a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I think uh you know, our campaign was so unique in Uxbridge, whereby, you know, a lot of people were invested in my story and the sort of journey into politics, but also a lot of people just hated Boris Johnson. And so I was in the privileged <laughs> position where my opponent was so disliked that naturally uh, it drove people um, to, to liking me. I like to think I had a little bit to do with it as well, but uh, I, I fully hold my hands up to say that, you know, I think uh, hatred of Boris Johnson or dislike of Boris Johnson also certainly played a role in that. Yeah, of course. I think it's not often that like a local campaign kind of garbage like national uh, national support because you, yeah. you like I'm sure there are people like other side of the country kind of keeping an eye on it and and looking out for your results. Yeah, yeah. I th- you know I'm just writing um just signed a book deal and we're, we're I'm writing the book of the story of the campaign and yeah, um, sure. I've I've been reflecting on you know the first when I got selected the first campaign session that we held. 
um, no one showed up. It was just me sat on a park bench. And I was just thinking about, you know, how are we going to mobilize the amount of people that we need uh, to to be able to knock on enough doors and speak to enough people to, to at least have a shot at this campaign. And then thinking back to the last session that we had where, you know, we had almost a thousand people show up. Uh, we didn't have enough like doors for people to knock on. People refused to go home. The I think we had at least five or six cameras in terms of major news broadcasters filming the entire session um, all the way from, you know, BBC, Washington Post, all the all the way to like Norwegian and, and uh, European German uh, news outlets as well. So it's a pretty incredible journey, I think, for a local campaign. Yeah, definitely. All right, man. So to get in for, into things, uh, we're going to do the quick fire round. So I'm just going to ask you a series of questions and you just give me uh, your preferred answer. Okay. Okay. This is, uh, this is exciting. <laughs> All right. First one, English or maths? English. 100%. Yeah. I did surprisingly well in my English, you know. Uh, when, when I got my results, uh, with my English uh, A-level results, both me and my teacher were questioning as to whether they marked the right person's paper. So I did surprisingly well. <laughs> uh, Messi or Ronaldo? Ronaldo, 100%. Did it in more countries, has done it for his country. Uh, I actually think he's also a better football in terms of he's better in the air, stronger. Messi is probably the second best player ever, but, but Ronaldo, I think, is a different level and has proven it in different, in different leagues as well. Do you reckon that's your Man United bias coming through as well? 100, yeah, 100%. 100%. 100%. <laughs> He's also won a, you know, Messi's been in the World Cup final, but never won it. Ronaldo won a European uh, Euros for his country as well. So I think that plays an influence as well. And he's a red, always will be. <laughs> films or TV series? Ooh, films still. There's still nothing from, you know, I love TV series. I've um, just watching... Uh, you know, uh, gotten into One Division. The new Superman and Lois show is out, which is pretty exciting uh, as well. Um, I just finished The Good Place, if anyone's seen it, which is quite funny. But uh, I don't think anything beats being in an actual movie theatre for me uh, and kind of escaping for two or three hours. Mm. Cats or dogs? Cats, I think, for me. Um, I don't know. There's just something about the fact that... Uh, uh, you have to earn their love a little bit more, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is funny. Xbox or PlayStation? PlayStation, yeah. Um, although, you know what, like, I'm hearing, you know, this PlayStation 5 is impossible to get hold of, apparently. Yeah, um, it, it seems that way. It's crazy, man. Yeah, I um, was jumping on FIFA last night and a couple of the guys I play with were saying, Came out in November and and no, it's still to this day no one can get their their hands on it. Yeah, but I don't I've get it. A, I've always been a PlayStation guy. I remember when I was a kid, uh, I got a PlayStation One, which was like the most exciting thing. But I only could we could only afford to get one game, and I got the Hercules game. Um, and for some reason, my mum tells me there was a cheat code section that you can put in cheat codes, and I was engrossed by that. So I wouldn't actually play the game. I would just go and try and guess the cheat codes all day, <laughs> putting in random codes. I don't. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know I if had that game uh, as well, actually. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that if that says anything about me, but <laughs> yeah. And 
Apple, sorry, orange juice or apple juice? Apple. Apple or Android? Apple, again, as uh, you can. You know what, like, this is another thing, funny story. Um, I got I got told off by my mom a couple of years ago because I was upgrading my phone. Um, and she was asking me whether I'd, I'd consider not getting an iPhone. And I just felt like I'm too old to change now, man. I'm too used to this, to the way the screen feels. And she's like, you're 23. What do you mean you're too old to change now? But I'm definitely set in my ways with my, uh, with my iPhone. Yeah, same. And Nike or Adidas? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, you know, when I was a kid, it was definitely Nike. Growing up now, I'd say Adidas. It's more comfortable, uh, more range. But when I was a kid, those Nike, what were those 90 were the, the football shoes that had the 90 on them? Total the 90s. Total 90s. Yeah. Bro. If you had total 90s in, in the playground, you were it, man. Yes, Definitely. man. Yes. Right. I'm pretty sure our football teams were picked on who had total 90s. <laughs> <laughs> Kanye West or Jay-Z? Jay-Z. Yeah. Biggie or Tupac? Tupac. Tupac, for sure, yeah. Spider-Man or Batman? Batman, no doubt about it. DC over Marvel every day of the week. Uh, well excited for the Snyder Cut, you know. This is, uh, you know, when I, again, another side story. Uh, I hope I'm not rambling. But um, when I did the, the, the Guardian, so the first big piece of press my campaign got was when the Guardian followed me around after the Trump protest. And they did this interview with my flat and people were fascinated by my flat because usually the common rule in politics is don't invite people into your home because it's it's too much of a, um, it's too high risk. Um, but we, we invited the Guardian back into my flat and it's a little studio, probably the size of like, uh, Boris Johnson's front room, but with it, I can attach toilet and uh, kitchen. And I have this, uh, I'm a bit bit of a DC fan, big DC fan, and I've got all of my comics and films and stuff all laid out. Um, and I remember the team telling me beforehand, make sure you get rid of that before the Guardian come in, because, you know, I'm not sure, we're not sure how voters are going to take the fact that you have a shrine to DC in your house. Um, and I don't know if we forgot or I like dug my heels in and decided not to. And the Guardian actually captured it. And I got rinsed in every WhatsApp group I'm in because of my so-called DC toys. Um, but uh, I've decided to lean into it in recent years. Uh, so big DC fan. Batman, world's greatest detective, 100%. Winter or summer? Ooh, summer. Nice. Summer, yeah. And finally, what is your favorite holiday destination? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, uh, I was surprised. I'm like a Londoner through and through, firmly of the belief London is the greatest city in the world. Uh, and no other city comes close. But I, I went to Paris a couple of years ago and I really loved Paris. The museums, great food. Um, and... So I think Paris is probably my favorite okay. location. Yeah. Also because the the weather the weather reminds me of London, I guess. Um, so the other one was Chicago. I went to Chicago for uh, when when I was following the Bernie Sanders campaign, and um, Chicago reminded me of London as well. So Chicago's cool. Okay. Sweet.
Alright, so to get started, Ali, can you tell me a little bit about your background and growing up? I mean, I know you came from you came to the UK from Iran at five, you know, unable to speak English. I mean, that must have been quite the experience. Yeah, yeah. So my, my family, you know, I, this story, like, again, it engrossed so many people, but it, it certainly in my community in the part of London, sort of urban London that I grew up in, it wasn't an extraordinary story. It wasn't, you know, stop the presses pretty much. Uh, most of my school had had a story somewhat similar to mine. Yeah, my, my family came to the UK when I was five, um, and so we didn't speak any English. I went to, to primary school in Northwest London and then secondary school and college in Northwest London as well. Um, you know, I grew up in a council estate with a single mum and who relied on the welfare state to put food on the table. The, the, the roof over our head was a council estate. Uh, and I went to a comprehensive uh, state school. Um, and, you know, I think that that journey, um, when I was running in the campaign, people were asking me, you know, aren't you a little bit too young, too inexperienced? What sort of experience do you have to, to, to become a member of parliament? And uh, I, as I grew into the role, I realized, and the more I spoke to people, the more I realized that actually my journey was the best experience I had because you know, the, the mantra that we had in the campaign was that people deserved leaders and MPs who understood what it was like to live like them. And I think my story is a far more common story in the UK of struggling to make ends meet, of, you know, uh, not having everything handed to us and, and you know, having to, to navigate issues of poverty, of, of crime, of, of sort of difficulties in terms of seeing a future for yourself in the country. I think that's a far more common uh, thread in the UK than a Boris Johnson, for example, and I only use him as the example because I, ra I ran against him. But you know, insert David Cameron, George Osborne, anyone you want in that who who went to Eton and Oxbridge and uh, and were essentially chiselled for public office. So I think my story was uh, was as part uh, as important to the campaign uh, as anything else, and uh, is why it related to, to to so many people. So yeah, and I. I went to school in uh, I went to St. Augustine's High School which is in Kilburn uh, South Kilburn uh, at, at the time um, and we thought you know like genuinely I, I thought we had a great childhood um, you know like playing football at the back of the estate getting in trouble uh, because we'd, we'd be playing football in areas that, that the council weren't necessarily happy with uh, being a councillor now I kind of understand some of the <laughs> some of the headache um, that, that we caused but uh, yeah, I, I, growing up, up until really my first year of college, I thought that that world that I existed in, in this country, was the only world that existed um, and didn't know that there were two different worlds, essentially, uh, that exist, uh, and one being the worlds of Boris Johnson and the other one being the worlds uh, of Ali Milani and millions of others. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, we, we, I still, to this day, loved my childhood. Wouldn't wouldn't trade going to school in St Augustine's for Eton for nothing. Uh, I went to Brunel University uh, as well in West London. Would never have traded that for an Ox Oxford or a Cambridge at all because I think ultimately both the education we received and the the, the understanding and the, the the pain that we felt is one that that millions other face. And and that is my best tool in politics is being able to understand what life is like for most folks 
So uh, you said that um, it was like first year of college, you kind of opened your eyes to, you know, there being yeah. another world outside yours. What happens yeah. that that led you to this realization? So, you know, like there was a growth, I think what I try and describe sometimes is that there was a, there was a, there was an angst within us. Like we were, we were a little bit angry at the world around us, but we couldn't articulate as to why, why that was. And particularly being from a minority community, you know, the war in Iraq was a big thing, the growing, by the time we got to college, the austerity program was in full force. So 2008, the economy crashes and rather than uh, reforming the finance sector and making the banks who caused the crash pay for the crisis, people like my family were forced to pay for the crisis by uh, cuts to uh, essentially the welfare state and the, the benefit system that, that many of us relied on. Um, and so there was this growing angst at seeing things change. Um, we, we had our maintenance allowance um, our educational maintenance allowance cut, uh, so we used to get thirty pounds a um, a week to go to, to go to college, and that was cut. Uh, I started to see my family struggling a little bit more as the the, the benefit system start to get squeezed down by the coalition government, um, and so there was this growing angst within us. And I think the lid burst on that when they decided to trouble the tuition fees, um, and I uh, I remember you know thinking at the time because it, we would have been the first generation to have to pay the £9,000 fees um, and there was something about that that seemed deeply unfair particularly given the fact that the people that were doing it didn't pay a penny for university and now suddenly were making us pay um, £9,000 and the student protests that were organised uh, was probably what opened our eyes um, to, to politics and I, I remember all of us being gathered in this common room because there was a walkout uh, at lunchtime to go to the demo. I think it was it was in the winter of 2010 because I remember it being freezing and I think it even snowed. Um, but we all gathered in the common room and a couple of us got up and gave what I would later learn to be my first political speech, kind of encouraging people to, 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 to go to the student demonstration. And I think something like 90% of our college did walk out uh, and go to the, to the protest. But I think that was the moment I think for sure that kind of lifted the lid on all the angst and anger that had been within us because of the world that had been built around us uh, and, and the sudden change um, of the conservative liberal democrat coalition uh, government um, and so you know that was a major moment for me i had planned to study film uh, okay. that's what i want i wanted to be a film director that was my big dream going into university uh, but after the demonstrations and, and that sort of that journey in early college for me, um, I decided to change my course to politics. Um, and, you know, I remember coming home from the protests, the student protest, and the amount of people that were there. Uh, I was convinced that the government would U-turn because I had just never seen anything like it. Now, bear in mind, we'd had the Million Man March with Iraq before, but I hadn't been there or conscious of being there. Um, and so I was convinced that the government was going to change tack because how could they not? Did you not see the thousands of young people on the street who were demanding change? And then when they didn't, I remember being like, wait, hang on a minute, what? Um, how could they not listen and feeling powerless? Um, and I never wanted to feel that powerless again, never wanted my community to feel that powerless again. And, and I was angry. Uh, and so I decided to, to, to redirect that anger into a constructive uh, force um, and 
I decided to get into politics. Uh, whether that's a good decision or a bad decision, you'd have to ask me again in like 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> whether that was, a, that was a good decision or not. But that was certainly the journey that I went on. And, you know, I look around politics now and the new generation that have come through uh, and a lot of faces will tell you the same story within our circles that that student protest was the was the the fire essentially the the match that lit the fire um that that got us all involved so even though the government didn't u-turn on that decision do you think that kind of was the start of a, a even bigger change oh yeah i think it was a mistake and uh i don't think they realized the sort of the wave of young people that they politicized um, through that and made politically conscious um, of of the importance of government elections and the impacts that that can have. Um, now, I still think we're a long way away from in terms of youth involvement, but uh, yeah, I definitely think there was a wave of young people getting involved uh, as a result of, of, of the troubling of tuition fees. Um, and it had a real impact on, I think, our political culture as well, because the Liberal Democrats had actually run a campaign on not increasing tuition fees, and yeah. then essentially, you you turned on that, and and, uh, and I think that had a Im- big impact on trust in politics as well. Um, but certainly, my generation in politics, when I look around now, uh, that moment uh, was probably as influential a moment as anyone could point to. Um, to I know who would have known it at the time, right? All these students on Westminster Bridge burning maths books to stay warm because the police had kettled us. Um, but yeah, who would have who would have known it at that moment that that would be the spark essentially that got so many of us involved in politics? Oh, sorry. What do you mean by the police kettled you? So at the time, it was well it was well noted, but it, not just us, but because there was a number of different protests. Um, and in the 2010 one, the winter one, um, the police kind of surrounded the students and wouldn't let us leave and wouldn't, essentially it was freezing as well. So um, kettling is a sort of police ta- tactic to keep the, the, the group in one, in one confined space. And they, so they would surround the protesters and not let anyone in or out. Um, okay. And we were held for hours um, and people would like burn their maths books to stay warm on the, on, um, to, that's the stories that we, that we, that we got afterwards as well. So, um, yeah, hugely influential, influential moment, I think for, for British politics. Uh, and I suspect in 10 years there will, you will see a lot more new, new and prominent political faces that were there that night. So you've decided to study politics at uni. So what? At that point, say when you've just started, what were your long-term intentions, if any? When I decided to study politics, yeah, I thought I'd be an activist for life, right? I um, I never imagined that I would stand for public office because it was not something that I that I ever consciously entertained the idea in my mind, um, and so I thought that I could be a decent sort of community activist. Um, you know, fighting for for changes at local authority level, at government level, lobbying government to, to make changes. Um, maybe work in the charity sector. Uh, maybe work in uh, the the third sector. But uh, but the reason I say this is political office was never in my conscious mind, even all the way at the sort of when I got to university um, and while I was studying politics at university, 
uh, it was never with the intention. And this is this is the main difference, I think, because that that Boris Johnson world that I told you about, the Eton Oxbridge, they really do embed it in your mind from an early age that you absolutely. Uh, have an opportunity to go on and become MPs and Prime Ministers and partially that's to do with the fact that so many people that went to your school eventually become uh, Prime Ministers. I think uh, somewhere in the region of 27 to 29% of the members of Parliament, so one in three, nearly one in three members of Parliament come from private schools uh, compared to 7% of the population. So massively over overrepresented. I think the difference in percentage is 314% increase from 7 to 20, 27 or 29% in terms of how many people go to private school. So when we went to school and the culture that we grew up in, it was never implanted in our minds that the public office was a place for us. And we kind of accepted that political norm that to be an MP or to be a, a prime minister or a cabinet member, you needed to go to the Eton and Oxbridge. So I had accepted that culture when I went to university and thought that I would be, you know, the pain in the ass with the, the with the megaphone outside the building demanding change. It wasn't until much later on uh, and through a lot of like struggle that I ever built the confidence in my own mind that I could stand. Uh, and even while I was standing, you know, you get that imposter syndrome of should I be here? Um, am I qualified to say these things? Um, and the system kind of reinforces that. But when I went to university and as I was studying politics, I always um, I always imagined myself being an activist for life. And I guess I am. I mean, there's no reason why an MP shouldn't be an activist for life. Um, but yeah, I didn't remember. If, if you would have told me even after that student protest that you would stand against the prime minister for parliament i would have laughed you out the room and asked you what you were smoking slash drinking <laughs> <laughs> so like now that you're you know fully involved in politics like how does it differ from what you were taught at uni like do you feel like you were well prepared from what you learned or was there a lot that you kind of experienced that you had to pick up for yourself and you weren't aware of? Um, so there's a difference between politics and party politics. Um, I think the, the world of the Labour Party, I hadn't learned anything about and have had to learn on my feet about the institution of the Labour Party and, and the way that, that kind of politics works. Um, so in a, in a way, studying politics doesn't prepare you really for the the game of politics that is um that that exists in the labor party and in westminster um as a whole i would say the most valuable lessons and the most valuable tools i learned or i use and experience in politics uh happened outside the confines of like formalized education they happened through my story they happened through my experience with my mum. My mum was made homeless when I was at university because of our changing circumstances. So when I moved out of the house, um, because we received council estate, uh, we, we lived on a council, in a council flat. Because the the, res the occupants of the house moved, she got kicked out of the house that we were in, had to live in a hostel for, uh, for, for a long time. And so that experience, that, 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 the, the pain and anger and all these kind of things uh, taught me a lot more about the role of a public representative um, than, than a lecture hall ever did. My experience in my campaign of talking to people, hearing their stories uh, and, and being able to, to connect with them, to connect with your community, taught me far more than any seminar uh, at university did. That being said, all of that is under 
pinned with the context of politics, of being able to understand our history of, of where the mechanisms and the levers of power are and how exactly do we change the things. There's no good feeling the pain and anger if, if I as public representative can't turn that into policy and turn that into improving the lives of, 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 of members. Um, and so the, both things were important. Uh, but but what I would say is the thing that we're missing is we have plenty of politicians that understand how to pass laws and understand the context and history of British politics. But I would I would go as far as to say the majority haven't felt the pain most of the communities have felt, haven't needed to think about when the next meal is coming from, haven't had to worry about their mum being homeless and, and whether she's going to get hostile for that night. They haven't, they don't understand what life is like for most folks in the in the country and that is as as valuable if not more valuable than sort of institutional knowledge anyone can learn institutional knowledge sure so uh, what was it that drew you to the labor party <laughs> this is a this is a funny story um i hope he's not going to be upset with me for telling this story but if he is i apologize in advance john for telling this story i um so I was a little bit of a smartass at university. Um, I was the the guy that you know was a. Uh, I had I had an element of cynicism about me, which I don't recognise in myself now. By the way, it's a huge change I think um, from the time I went to university. But I was the one that said they're all the same. Uh, okay. All the political parties and all the politicians are the same. They're all corrupt. Um, and I went to as a first year university student. I went to. Our politics society was hosting this talk with John McDonnell, who was the local MP, later became the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer under, uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and I remember going to this talk and, and I, I went with the intention of giving him a hard time. So I thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a smart ass and I'm going to show this guy why they're all corrupt. And he does his talk and we get to the question and answer session and I put my hand up and I get picked to ask one question. Uh, I asked six. Um, and I wouldn't let the microphone go. Uh, everything ranging from, you know, your party invaded Iraq to, um, you know, why is the party not stronger on austerity and the cuts to government, all this kind of thing. And I sat back and as he answered, I, uh, I, 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 I was physically shocked because he answered all my questions honestly and he addressed my points and I agreed with almost everything he said. But even when I didn't, it was a very different picture of a politician to the one that I had in my mind of the Nick Cleggs who had promised us one thing and done the other and the David Camerons who had sat in their room while we were outside in the freezing cold shouting. This was, I got the fact that he cared and he was honest and he addressed me directly. And I remember after the event, I kind of scrambled to the front and I said to him, I've never campaigned for, a, for the Labour Party, not even a member, uh, wouldn't even consider joining. Uh, but I want to campaign for you. Um, and he gave me his contact information and told me to stay in touch. And I think John broke the barrier in my mind where I realized po politics is more complex than that. And cynicism doesn't help anyone. There's no progress can be made with cynicism. Um, and uh, and yes, there are plenty of politicians that are that picture that I painted, but there's also plenty of Johns uh, out there who are also fighting to improve things for their local community. He's the only MP uh, at that time that I knew that lived in the area that he represented. He walked, took the bus to his constituency office and so uh, would speak to local residents and hear their stories and he was one of them. So um, I wouldn't join the party for another two years because it was that <laughs> that much of a mental sort of block to get over. 
but I realized over time that uh, the Labour Party does have a proud history of, of fighting for, for working people. Um, and it's not immune to some of the symptomatic problems in politics, but it is the the party that seeks to change things for working people and, and you know, uh, everything from the, the introduction of the minimum wage to the cut in child poverty um, to, you know, the resistance to austerity uh, in more recent years. Um, this is the party that I felt home in. And once I joined and I got to meet the members, that's when the real cynicism started to leave me because I saw hope in these members. You know, they all they all wanted the same sort of world, wanted to fight for a different world the same way I did. Um, they they were hopeful, optimistic. There was a amazing like community there, um, and so my perspective shifted one one eighty from being a student showing up to that to actually joining the Labour Party, seeing the Labour Party for what it is and what it could be uh, and the potential it has uh, for for change. And this is the one thing I would say to, to anyone listening who sometimes gets angry. Like, I don't agree with everything the party does sometimes or individual party members or Labour Party MPs do or even the leadership does. But as far as the United Kingdom's politics goes, the Labour Party is our best route for change. Um, and, uh, and the party isn't just the leadership it's also the members uh and the members that i have met are awesome awesome forces for change um and so uh that i think that that talk that i went to with john combined with meeting labor party members and that journey that i went through kind of got me into the labor party and now i uh i proudly say this i love that this is the party i love it's a party i feel at home in um and uh i was proud to be uh I'm proud to be a Labour councillor and I was proud to be a Labour candidate for Parliament. You're listening to the Get to Know what does the role entail of being a Labour councillor? Um, so, look, a lot of it is uh, you're, you're the local representative uh, for the ward that you represent. So I'm in Heathrow Villages, which is the surrounding sort of villages and, and residents um, uh, around Heath, Heathrow Airport. And um, a lot of the powers uh, that people think sit in local government or uh, sit in national government actually sit in local authorities, things like housing, um, things like infrastructure, uh, local health, even. Um, uh, a lot of these, the mechanisms for change sit in local authorities. And so it, you know, I always say politics is always local. Um, and so we have a, an amazing opportunity to, to change uh, and impact the lives of local residents for the better. Um, and so it includes everything from constituents getting in touch about potholes and bins all the way to us, you know, finding homes for, for young families who have been made homeless 
to holding the local hospitals and health uh, sectors accountable for, for good services, supporting them uh, in, in, in delivering good services uh, for members. So it's, it's a pretty broad ranging thing, but uh, I just wish more people got involved in it because there's so much opportunities for, for helping people and changing local lives through local authorities. Uh, and we really need to get that, that, that message out there. Uh, how have you found it? Like since, you know, since you were elected, like what, what how's yeah. it been against maybe your expectations? Yeah, it's been, it's been cool. Look like, um, my favorite part of, I, I think it's pretty clear is interacting with people. Uh, it's, it's tough cause we're in opposition. Um, and our, our local Tories are really shit. So the, it's, it's difficult because the big things that we want to change, we just can't do it because we, 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 we don't have a majority in, in the council. Um, but yeah, like when I got in, people were like, uh, get ready to get a lot of emails about bins. Um, and that has a hundred percent been true. Uh, but it's not a throwaway comment because it has like legitimately has an impact on people's lives. If the, if the bins don't get cleaned up and, uh, if, 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 it impacts everything from the how nice the community looks, being able to walk, the health of the local community, um, all the way to climate change and, and, and the impacts it has on our environment. Um, I'm particularly, you know, we have a particular challenge in Heathrow because uh, everything from the third runway expansion to uh, the air quality, these are big things that we have to fight. So we have to fight on often tougher ground uh, than others. Um, in, in that area of West London, we breathe in some of the worst air in Europe, uh, quality of air where, where I am now. So um, uh, I think climate change and and the environment uh, are, are big, big areas of our work. We, the local council in Hillingdon took um, the government to court over the, uh, the third runway expansion as well and won. So um, being able to influence um, national policy and, and climate change as a whole and potentially even the world uh, is, 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 is pretty exciting stuff. So I would definitely encourage more people to do it, but particularly talking to young folk, man, we need more young. Like I show up, I show up to council meetings and I like no word of an exaggeration, man, the average age must be like 96. Um, I, when myself and Kerry Prince, who were two local councillors um, who were on the younger side showed up to our first council meeting, we must have dropped that average age by like 20 years. Um, <laughs> so we're always trying to get more young people involved because that young perspective is really, really important in local authorities. So you were the president of your UNESU and you were also the vice president of the NUS. So how do you think those um, you know roles prepared you for where you are now and where you could yeah. be headed? The two years at Brunel as SU president was probably the the best years so far of my political life because we got so much done um, and so much changed and um, it was really like because I, when I when I became president it was my playhouse man I could uh, essentially all the ideas that you had there was space for them to become reality at my time at NUS uh, probably best prepared me for politics because NUS. Um, I would say NUS is national politics plus five years. Uh, so something that becomes mainstream in NUS five years on becomes mainstream in national politics. Um, and you can find uh, so many people in, in particularly the Labour Party now, 
um, who were NUS officers, everything from West Streeting now, who's the education minister, was the NUS president. Um, the old uh, Scottish Labour leader was also NUS president. So many of us have been involved in student politics. So um, NUS in its unique culture and combativeness, uh, I'm being kind, uh, probably best prepared me for some of the, the combativeness of the Labour politics as well. So um, what was next for you after, you know, you finished your terms in office? Um, so it was actually while I was NUS vice president when I got the phone call as to whether I would stand, consider standing for Uxbridge and South Ryslip against Boris Johnson. Um, and I think other people saw the potential in the story before I did. Um, and I'm kind of giving some of the spoilers of the book away, but it's okay. I, uh, I got a phone call from someone and I was, um, <clears throat> I was in a, it was a weekend and I was doing a seminar for young people, trying to get more young people involved as in NUS, more students involved in NUS. Um, and the conversation, I think literally went, hi, hello, how are you? I'm good. And literally the next thing was, uh, we're looking for candidates in Uxbridge and South Ryslip and we think you should run against Boris Johnson for MP. Uh, and I think I went, what? Like trying to clarify, you mean you're MP? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And I might have said something to the degree of fuck off and hung up the phone. Um, and so was quite uh, dismissive of the idea. And it took me months to, to kind of come around to the idea with people saying, yo, just imagine the campaign you could run with being a young Muslim immigrant from a council estate, the story that you've had versus Boris Johnson, who wasn't the prime minister at the time. Um, and imagine the, the, the poetic nature of this story. Uh, and I remember always thinking, yeah, that sounds all well and good, but you're not the one that has to do it. I'm the one that has to do it. And I'd already had plenty of interactions with the press, so knew what kind of uh, thing to expect there. Uh, but eventually I came around to how powerful the story could be as well. Um, and so, yeah, my jump from student politics straight international sort of politics happened quite quickly. Um, more quickly than was the norm, I think, um, which was, uh, yeah, which was fun. Um, because, you know, for a period there, I got both the, the pushback of being an NUS officer, which the press certainly doesn't like, and then running against probably the most prominent uh, politician in the country, which also wasn't a lot of fun um, in terms of the, the, the the press pressure, but uh, wouldn't have changed it for anything. I think ultimately we made the right decision. So why didn't the press like the fact that you're an NUS officer? Uh, look, there's, there's, when I say the press, I'm generalizing and yeah. I probably shouldn't because there's, there's, it's, it's not the whole press, but certain sections of our right-wing press have a particular problem with NUS because of the progressive stances it takes on things. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, we got a lot of shit over the free speech stuff, which we thought I thought was utter nonsense. Um, some of the pushback around free speech. Oh, could um, you um, elaborate? Yeah, so like uh, when I was an US officer, and still to this day, there's, there was this big conversation around freedom of speech on campuses uh, and whether like, you know, this whole woke students are shutting down debate when nothing further from the truth could be the case. We were, you know, I was monitoring the whole situation and the only things getting shut down were in fact probably... Um, events uh, happening which would be considered on the left of, of, of political stances. So 
Um, I I always thought it was a uh, it was a distraction mechanism uh, by, by by the conservatives uh, by the conservative government at the time. Um, they generally not very pro unions and student unions and student union organising has been a historic place to, to that has won things. You know, students had a historic role in keeping Britain out, out of the Vietnam War. They had a historic role in uh, in fighting apartheid in South Africa, um, and so you know that sort of history means uh NUS has always had a difficult relationship with the, with the right wing press particularly um and obviously being the first muslim vice president union development of NUS uh was was only exacerbated um exacerbated that and then going on to stand against Boris Johnson uh as well but we had fun man they wrote stuff that wasn't true i ignored it largely sometimes tweeted funny things about them um but uh, the best, okay, I, I can tell you this one. The, the first big one that I had was Katie Hopkins. So um, when I was SU president, um, Brunel University, in all its wisdom, decided to invite Katie Hopkins to participate in a debate on the welfare state. Katie Hopkins being the, um, the well-established economist and hugely respected uh, figure in politics. That was sarcasm. <laughs> that was sarcasm. Obviously, right. I, re- I realize this is a podcast and people aren't seeing my face. That was, that was sarcasm. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we kicked up a big fuss about it, largely because, you know, this is someone who had called, uh, who had said a lot of inflammatory things. Um, and we didn't think it was appropriate for her to speak. Um, this wasn't saying she didn't have the right to speak. It was saying what was the 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 sense in inviting her from the university's perspective. Um, and so uh, we organized this walkout where the students stood up and walked out as she yeah, began to that. speak um, at the at the event. I think we got like 150 students to walk out at the time. Uh, and it went viral. It got like, uh, like two, three million views on YouTube within weeks. Uh, I think the next day we had something like 130 press requests from everywhere, from the BBC, ITV to to Romanian news channel, I think that I did an interview for, which was fun. Um, and so that that was the first taste I got of like mainstream press attention. Um, and uh, it would it would teach me, I think, a lot because that would be a consistent theme of my life uh, over the next couple of years. Continuing with you know, your your campaign, so. A lot of people were invested in it, like we said earlier, and I kind of don't want to dwell on this part too much of it because I know I'll get onto that a little bit um, later. But being an immigrant and a Muslim, given you know Boris Johnson's previous comments, was it almost a little bit personal for you as well as political? Yeah, hundred percent personal because I think what what Boris doesn't realise is when he says the things he says, he's questioning whether I belong in this country and whether people like me have a place. In this country, and I see myself, you know, I um, uh, this is my country as much as it is his, and my communities as much as it is theirs. Uh, we this part of the story of Britain is all of us, I think, and so it was a hundred percent personal um, for me, uh, not just as an immigrant, but also you know as a as a working class kid who grew up in a council estate. You know, the story of 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 the 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 poverty that we went through was didn't was crossed all racial lines as well. Um, obviously, uh, minority communities are, are disproportionately affected by it, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the, I think my journey into it 
made it made it personal for me. The fact that it happened to be Boris Johnson made it even even more so. Um, and also it, it, the impacts that people's words have as well. I I tell you another story. Um, uh, I'm really just giving the whole book away here. But the uh, in w- the first big event we held, so we had this uh, real trouble early on in the campaign of getting enough people campaigning, largely because it was so far away from an election. Um, but also we weren't really gathering the fire that we wanted. And then the Guardian interview that we did kind of blew things up and suddenly we had all this attention. Um, and we did this uh, unseat Boris Johnson event uh, with Owen Jones um, outside the council offices where we had um, Owen came, Diane Abbott came, Richard Bergen came, um, uh, who were all front benches at the time. And I think Owen Jones came uh, and spoke. Uh, and we were all supposed to go off and campaign afterwards. And the night before, uh, I got a um, a death threat through my door. Um, so a, a handwritten death threat, essentially, that was slipped through my letterbox without a postage stamp. So someone had walked up to my door, knew where I'd lived and, and posted this. Um, and uh, it, it, it was a real unique, it wasn't the first time I'd received a death threat. It was the first time I'd written a hand, uh, I had received a handwritten one through the door. And I remember calling one of my friends and saying, look, We've got this big event tomorrow, and uh, if someone wanted to come and do something, right? What secure, like what, what measure, what can we do? And I remember us being on the phone for forty-five minutes and essentially saying, "Well, there's not much we can do." Um, and we reported it to the police, uh, and they they came. And uh, from then on, um, we regularly reported our big campaign events, and they would come. Sometimes plainclothes police officers would 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 come with me. Um, as a as a form of sort of security uh, at these big events, but um, I remember having that conversation. Going, oh, there's not much we can do. And then you know, this plays in my mind now of you know some of the things that Boris had said and the, the climate that these kind of politicians have created have fed into this. I mean, Joe Cox was murdered uh, by a by a far right um, far right individual. So I think. Uh, it was definitely personal for me because I had experienced it my whole life. I wasn't talking about politics in the abstract when I was when I was railing against austerity. When I said how cruel it was, it wasn't because of statistics. It was because of what my family had gone through. When I'd spoken about the, the culture of racism that that, that Boris um, had had fed into with some of his comments, it wasn't abstract. It was because I was receiving death threats as a as a Muslim uh, immigrant candidate. Um, not an immigrant candidate, but you know what I mean, as a Muslim immigrant yeah. who, who, who who was a candidate. Um, and so, and I think that was the that was the beauty of our campaign. It was the poetry. It was what we were saying. We were saying that, you know, imagine the message it would send to Westminster if my story could unseat his. Uh, imagine the impacts it would have on our politics and, and the hope that it would, it would, force into our politics if someone from my background was able to defeat him what would it say about the accessibility of politics and yes we didn't win but ultimately i think we made our point anyway um yeah what local campaign in a seat with five thousand majority gets thousands of people showing up to knock on doors what local campaign and what local candidate who wasn't an existing mp has more press requests than members of the front bench of the shadow cabinet uh you know I'm not sure any other, bar Pfizer Shaheen maybe in, in Chingford as well, who also had a really, really poetic story. 
you know, I don't know of local campaigns that ended up in the Washington Post on CNN and BBC, ITV, Channel 4, everywhere, uh, and had the thousands of people that came. I had people campaign for me who came from New York, who came from Denmark, who came from Sweden. By the end of the campaign, we did this game where I would ask people to shout out what, what the furthest distance they've come to campaign from us. And it started off by people saying Brighton and Nottingham, and it ended with New York. Uh, people had, had flown over to campaign for us and did it have something to do with Ali Milani maybe mostly what it had to do with was the story that we were telling the 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 you know we were telling people something else was possible um and I think the end result was almost irrelevant to that now uh at the time obviously it wasn't but now I think the point was made and uh and we set an example of I think how you can run a local campaign that 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 inspires so much uh, hope i bro i i knocked some of the most powerful moments for me was when i knocked on doors and young people you know communities of color whether it was working class kids who, who grew up in the same area white working class kids who grew up in the same area as me would open the door and i'd say i'm here from the Labour party and i would tell them i would i was the candidate and i would see their eyes light up where they'd be like, wow, you like someone like me is the candidate running against Boris Johnson, um, and again, it's it, it's I, I I try and add as much humility in that it's not necessarily about who Ali Milani is. It's about being able to give these people, like a lot of these people who who had the same mentality that I had as 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 a as as a someone who went to university about politics all being the same, and saying no, we can change it. Uh, we just all have to come together to do that. You're listening to the Get to Know podcast. So the reason why I said I didn't want to dwell on you being an immigrant and being Muslim mm. is because during your campaign, pretty much every headline was yeah. about you as Muslim immigrant running against Boris Johnson. Yeah. It's like so. How did you find that? Was that annoying for you? Or was it just? Did it help you? Or it 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 was it was difficult, man. Like. Because to a certain degree, I got it, and I didn't want to run from it. You know, we, we weren't hiding the fact it's part. It's part of my story. It's part of this country's story. It's part of London's story specifically. We never, we never ran from it at all. But it did get frustrating by the middle of the campaign when, like, journalists were incapable of writing a headline other than Muslim immigrant. Um, and I was saying, you know these are important parts of my identity and important parts of my journey and my background but that's not all i am you know i'm i'm a british citizen i'm a i'm a londoner i have views on things other than uh immigration for example right i have very strong views about immigration but i have other views too um and i remember we did an interview with um with a particular journalist that i'll i'll i won't name but i i sat with her at, at a um, at a costa and I said I would do the interview with her on one condition. Uh, and I said she could ask me anything she wanted. We never put, put and to this day, like, uh, no journalist can say I ever did this. We never put preconditions on interviews that we did. They can always, you know, I know a lot of politicians do this where they say, well, we'll do the interview if you don't ask about X, Y, and Z, or we'll do the interview about this specific in section alone. We never did that on purpose because, uh, you know, we believed part, part of the responsibility of the campaign was to allow anyone to ask anything. But the one prerequisite we put on this one was, just please don't make the headline Muslim immigrant. 
That's all I wanted. Fair enough. And we did the interview. And I said, look, put it in the body of the text, you know, that's not, but just don't make the headline Muslim immigrant because every single headline is about this one thing. Um, and of course, the article came out and it was Muslim immigrant, you know, takes on Boris Johnson. And it was frustrating to me. But um, it, it, it was mixed emotions, you know, like I said, we never wanted to run from it because I do want to make the case for immigration. I do want to make the case for the, the value and vibrancy multiculturalism has brought to this country and continues to contribute to our society but what i also want to say is is part of that is accepting that we we're all one britain yeah. we're all you know this is part of the story of, of britain and uh, i see myself as british first and foremost not with caveats i'm not a british immigrant muslim british muslim all this i'm british and this is my country and this is my community and i want to give back to my community and, and help uh, change things where i can and, and this one part of my identity doesn't define me so that was that was a struggle but we also never wanted to run from it because we knew the 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 power that presenting a positive sort of vision on on these issues uh, could have so it was a bit both but i would be lying to you if i didn't wake up some mornings read some headlines and and get really angry at the fact that i was only being painted as one thing yeah I guess, you know, to a lot of people, that would be inspiring. You know, if you're a young immigrant and you stay in, you know, you're running against Boris Johnson, I guess that could do a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, and that's that's why I didn't want to run from it, you know. That's why, um, you know, we never wanted to hide that aspect of me when, you know, we when we did interviews and things like that. I always answered honestly, leaned into it and, and made the case for why that part of my story helps me. Um, why it's as part, it's as much a part of me as anything else, but it's not the only part, and that was that that was what was tough. But yeah, I I would have exchanged enough. I wouldn't have exchanged a moment of seeing you know our communities being able to see someone like me run against Boris Johnson for for anything. I think it was real, really powerful, and um, was able to to make the positive case. I think. Yeah. For political engagement, yeah. So something that I really liked about your campaign is that you very much based it on speaking, you know, to as many constituents as you could. And personally, mm. I believe that as a representative of the people, that's exactly what you should be doing. So, so good on you for that. I really like that. Yeah, I think we knocked on more doors than any other constituency in the country, bar one or two. Um, yeah. So we sp- and we had the biggest turnout of of uh, of rallies and things that we did. I started doing these Ask Me Anything which the Labour Party told me in no uncertain terms not to do, um, where we would book out these like halls and, and community spaces, and we would invite local residents to just show up and ask me anything. Um, and we would do these roundtables, where just like local folks would come and we would just have chats about things. Um, and I ne- we never once asked them to vote for us uh, in those settings. We just wanted to have a chat and, and, and be able to connect with people. I knew I would never outspend Boris Johnson, and I didn't. I knew I would never get more positive media coverage or even as much media coverage as the prime minister of the country at the time. Uh, but I also knew that I could I could talk to more people than he did. I was confident on that, uh, in that. So, um, and that was definitely something that we accomplished. And, th- and that's why I think when you actually look at the numbers, yes, we didn't win, uh, but we outperformed the Labour swing by 10%. Um, again, the second best performing seat when you look at the national swing across the country um, and there was a reason for that I think 
Alright, so um, what sort of message do you think it sends about politics in this country that one of the highest profile politicians is selected by his party to run in a constituency that he has no affiliation to and then refuses to debate the opposition? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you, you remember that I painted that picture of the two worlds that existed for us growing up. I think the same is true in our politics. That, you know, there's a class of politicians that think public office is a birthright and that it should be a conveyor belt of the most privileged wealthy in our in our society and um, that the rest of us should kind of just go along with that. Um, and then there are those of us uh, in the Labour Party who believe that politics should be accessible to everyone and it's called the House of Commons for a reason. Um, it's supposed to be for, for um, you know, the whole country. Um, and so one of my big uh, sort of dreams for, for, for our politics is to be able to open up the doors and make it as accessible to everyone and make sure that, you know, voices like mine and others um, can be represented uh, in our parliament, in all of our structures of government. Um, and that's only, I think that's the true way in which we get the best, healthiest form of our democracy is to have uh, all of us, all of our communities represented. Sure. So, of course, you know, the election result wasn't what we wanted in mm -hmm. the end, but you know, how, what, what, are you, what are your overall thoughts on the campaign and what lessons did you learn, if any? Look, I th like I said earlier, I think uh, in the campaign I was committed to winning and I thought we could win. Uh, and with a different national swing, I think maybe we could have. But um, I think we made the point, we told the story, we presented a vision and thousands, hundreds of thousands probably, got, uh, based on our social media stats, came along with us uh, and saw what we were trying to do and, 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 and felt what we were feeling, I think, on the ground in that the country is ready and uh, hungry for, for a different kind of politician and politics uh, that is more hopeful, more open, more accessible, um, less cynical uh, in the interests of all of us. And I think we made that point beautifully. Um, uh, you know, I... I was able to see in the faces, in the sea of faces in our campaign rallies, you know, old and young, uh, you know, black and white, uh, from different economic statuses, uh, from different backgrounds and journeys, united in in wanting a different, you know, changing politics and being able to to have someone like me beat someone like him. Um, so it, despite losing, and I always say that we still massively outperformed the national national swing in terms of seats, um, uh, and we spoke to more people and knocked on more doors, I think the story of the campaign stands true. Um, and I think the the uniqueness of the attention and the, the fervent support and the incredible journey that our campaign went on uh, shows that the country is ready for that sort of uh, political message. Um, like, let's not forget, I started with no one showing up to my campaign events. Literally sat on a park bench by myself to thousands of people showing up uh, and campaigning for us. And I think we just need the political courage to get us there. Um, you know, I sometimes worry that, that some of some of the people in our politics thinks politics think politics is all about reacting. Um, that it's all about what do people already think? And let me regurgitate that back to them. Uh, focus grouping everything. So every sentence that comes out of someone's mouth going through a focus group or through a uh, some sort of you know, stringent political st structure. I don't believe that. I think, you know, I have this strong belief that I think people can smell authenticity a mile away. 
Um, so when I'm doing this podcast with you, I have no notes. I just answer the questions as they come to me. And I always did that with all my interviews, uh, knowing that I will make mistakes, but people will forgive me for those mistakes if they think I'm being honest, if they think I'm being genuine. And that's all I really have because I don't have the money. I don't have the family backing, the family name, the friends that I made in, in the tea rooms of my Eton College that I went to. I don't have any of that. But what I do have is, is a story and a journey that connects uh, with more people and uh, and a background that I think is uh, reflective uh, of, of millions of people in this country. And, uh, you know, I, I want to be able to communicate in that in an open, honest and open way. Um, and so I really think what our story, what our campaign showed was that you can campaign differently at a local level, uh, that, that you can present a positive, hopeful, open message to the country and people are ready and willing to come with you you just have to have the political courage to do it and i'm not just saying it wasn't me that had the political courage it was the it was the local labor party in oxbridge and south rice it was my you know campaign team it was all of them together none of you know i always believe this about movement building it's not about any one individual it's about all of us coming um coming together uh and in in the story of that humility uh, let me tell you one last story um in the lead up to the campaign because of the amount of pressure, the attention we had got, uh, I got a little taste of what it was like to be semi-famous, right? I would go to local Asda in Uxbridge um, and people would stop me and tell me that they just voted for me by post or um, that they supported our campaign. Um, and then the day after the election, uh, I went to get milk at the corner shop and uh, I got stopped by this uh by this guy and this is after all the praise and you know all the attention that we had gotten in the weeks this guy stops me the night after the election after we had lost and when he went ali milani and i went yeah he went the local labor candidate you're gonna run against boris johnson and i said yeah and he looked me dead in the eye went labor's shit aren't they and he just walked out walked out of the corner shop and the, my local corner shop guy obviously <laughs> knows me he was cracking up bro he was like he thought it was so funny and I just went, I remember thinking, what a way to come crashing back down to <laughs> from all the publicity and press, this guy to look me dead in the eye and tell me Labour's shit, uh, which I obviously don't agree with. <laughs> but, um, but just a reminder that we still have, we still have so much work, so much more to do and so much further to go. Uh, one little thing I did want to bring up is, um, you know, in the results night of, at, at, you know, you Boris Johnson like um when they was reading out the results and then um Lord Buckethead gave Count Binface the finger when he got more votes than him oh that I didn't see your reaction on the screen because it was on them but what was your reaction I don't think I saw it because largely I tell you what was going on in my mind we knew we'd lost for hours before then because we uh we were in the count as, as they're counting so we knew we'd lost it I didn't know I had to give a speech until I was walking up to the stage. Oh, okay. um, so I thought only the winner gives a speech. But as I'm walking up, the returning officer tells us, you know, the top three candidates have to give speeches. And obviously you've got the world's press in front of you. So when I was stood there, I was thinking, shit, what do you say when you've lost? <laughs> do, you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, so I didn't see anything. In fact, funny story, I, I think I barged into Carrie with her dog, um, Boris's partner, and had no clue in the world who she was because I was so in my own mind of what speech I'm going to give. How can I pull, 
you know, how can I not lose the hope that we found in the in the campaign? Um, looking back now, the picture looks fucking ridiculous. <laughs> man. You've got myself and Boris Johnson. And then you've got a guy dressed as Elmo. You've got Count Binface, Lord Buckethead, this dude in a weird, like, the BBC are communist shirts. Um, I don't think I appreciated the spectacle of that stage while mm. I was on it. Uh, also, I was knackered, man. I had been up for like 48 hours. Um, I don't, to this day, I don't remember what I said. Um, but uh, I heard it was pretty good because even the Tories came up to me afterwards and, and, and said uh, that was a good speech. So um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, I guess ultimately the speech was pretty good. Uh, but no, I don't remember. I don't remember count binface or lord bucket had given oh, anyone face. the finger they might have even given me the finger <laughs> no it was you know you have a look on youtube man it's just like a few minute video it's quality man you'll enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think one of them endorsed me by the way oh really one of them endorsed me yeah they oh, put a video i remember because i remember it was like in, in the heart of the campaign like two weeks to go to the campaign i got a phone call on my personal mobile and it was this guy who told me his name and said, I'm, it was either Buckethead or Binface. I think it was Binface. And he said, yo, I think you can win. I'm going to endorse you. Um, and he was like, in an hour, I'm going to put up a video on Twitter endorsing you. And I remember putting down the phone and saying to my campaign manager, I was like, yo, I just got the weirdest phone call. Uh, and he was like, what happened? I was like, I think Count Binface is going to endorse us on Twitter. And he was like, what do you want to do? I was like, I just fucking ignore it. I don't know. <laughs> what, do <you> do? <laughs> what do you do with that information? <laughs> yeah. So uh, something that I, I do like, uh, like you said, is that you don't want to be a traditional MP. You wanted to keep being yourself. But I imagine that would yeah. be quite difficult because, you know, I think maybe quite a few MPs probably have that same mindset. So, yeah. I mean, how do you intend on uh, staying true to yourself? You know, I think a lot of it is where you're based. I, I I really subscribe to John's sort of idea of once you become an MP, you should live amongst your constituents and they should be able to see you at the local shop and walking on the street and living amongst them. I think that has a huge impact because people are also amazingly honest. Um, if they think you're doing a crap job, they'll let you know. Um, so I think that's hugely important. Uh, look, there's no doubt people change, but it's about how you change, you know? Um, one of the things I do privately, um, I try and read my personal statement that I wrote to university as to what, because you know you write this personal yeah. statement before you go to university as to why you want to get into politics. I try and read that uh, once every couple of months to remind myself as to why um, why I got involved. Um, you know, I, I still, we joe.co.uk did this interview with me where I, I still play football or, or did before... Uh, the lockdown i play football with the same group of mates every every friday and trust me man they'll keep you grounded because if i do an interview that's crap um a lot of the campaign team will be like oh it's okay it's okay ali but when i show up on a friday before the game i'll get roasted <laughs> uh, uh, or if i wear something this is the worst part this haircut for example i guarantee you has been roasted more times than anything else and it's not something that's choice it's obviously lockdown but um being surrounded by the right people, staying true to your values, uh, making sure you live amongst your community. I think all of these things have huge impacts on uh, on, on, on politicians. And also, I have no intention of being a sort of ordinary uh, person involved in politics. That doesn't mean who knows. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna, ever going to restand again, or whether I'll find a different role for myself, um, or whether it's you know getting behind someone else who I think is better suited for the job. Uh, but I will always 
hold true, I think, to the belief that that the, one of the most important things a politician can have is being authentic and honest with their constituents. And I think people can feel it um, a mile away. Yeah. And uh, something I wanted to touch on briefly is, you know, previously in your youth, you know, there were some anti-Semitic tweets, but mm-hmm. you've, you know, you've educated yourself, you know, you've been to Auschwitz and you also don't shy away from speaking about it. So in yeah. this age of like cancel culture, how important do you think is that people are given the opportunity to learn from the error of their ways instead of just being cancelled? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I don't actually think cancel culture is a, a thing. I think the, um, the, the, the point is, in that same spirit of like authenticity and honesty, uh, I never claimed to be a perfect candidate um, and someone who's free from mistakes. I had made these mistakes. I'd been very open and honest about them, but it wasn't just about you know apologizing sincerely and and learning from them. It was about growing as well. So I made an effort to go through the training, to engage with communities. Uh, like you said, uh, I was fortunate enough to go with the Holocaust Memorial Trust to, to Auschwitz and Birkenau and see the impacts anti-Semitism has. But one of the things I, you know, I think it's important for our politics to learn is we're in a very different age now, and I think people are uh, are growing up in public. Yeah. And so comments that used to be confined to the common room or the playground are now being stored for the rest of our lives on social media, and yeah. doesn't make them any better which is part of the reason why I was advocating for anti-racism and political training at schools. So mistakes I made are never repeated again. But we also have to get our politics to a place where it both educates young people on the impacts of their words, but also understands that we're in a different place now. Yeah. Um, And uh, the test, I think, of a candidate isn't whether they've made any mistakes in their past. We all have. It's about how they deal with them and their openness and willingness to, to, to overcome them. And once we do that, I genuinely believe people are willing to forgive, you know, with, with context and with sure. within reason. Uh, but I found, you know, extraordinary kindness in people's willingness to forgive me for, for my errors, as long as, you know, I matched that kindness with a commitment of, of following through uh and 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 making sure that those mistakes are, are never repeated and i think our politics needs to get to that place uh to, to to be more more healthy because um i think we're just coming to terms with with the the era of social media let's say yeah and uh what does success look like for you um i success for me always looks like being able to change our politics into a place where our communities are represented. And that feeling of powerlessness Ali had in 2010 isn't repeated for, for young people coming through, uh, where our politics are more representative of, of the communities that we're in. Um, and for me, it's irrelevant as to whether Ali Milani is part of that story. It's whether all these our communities are uh, and being able to have a more, e- more open, more equal society, you know, eradicating this, disgusting level of poverty that exists in our society, tackling the racism and the nationalism that has been injected into our society and into our politics and making sure our our politics, the House of Commons and the MPs people see on TV grunting and making fools out of themselves in the House of Commons better represents the faces of the people that I see every day in Uxbridge. The people that I saw every day in South Kilburn, the faces that walked past me should be reflective of those in the houses of commons. Um, and I think 
we need a class of politicians who are more representative and understand what life is like for those in their communities and with the polit political courage to tackle inequality, climate change, racism, and all these, the, the, the big issues uh, of our day. That's what success would look like for me. I know it's an ambitious goal, but you know, in more recent years, I have no time or energy for cynicism. Opt we have to be optimistic and we have to be willing to, to fundamentally change things for the better. All right, great. Thank you, Ali. All right. So just before we go, because I know you do have to go soon, I just want to do the trivia yeah. section now. I think I did say I was going to do. Am I going to be? Am I? Am I going to be marked on this? Is the question? Uh, yeah, it's out of five. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So I did originally say Labour, but I thought I'd switch it up to Man United. I thought that'd be a bit more interesting, and yeah, we will find. Yeah. Obviously, everybody. Also, everybody knows. I get a lot. Of, I get a lot of shit for this. I'm a big Man United fan, so um, I hope uh, this this is a good representation of being a red. <laughs> All right. First question: Which player wore the number seven shirt after Cristiano Ronaldo left? Is it A. Michael Owen? Michael Owen. Yeah, it's Michael. Owen. Owen. Okay. It, yeah. It is fair play. Good yeah. start. Yeah, never forget that last-minute goal against City. Even though he's a, he'll always be a, a Liverpool player, and so he doesn't quite get the any love from any United fans. But I remember it being Michael. You see, now he's ta he tarnished his Liverpool legacy by going to you lot. Uh, no, by the <laughs> way, he's the only player nobody accepts. So, <laughs> yeah. Red Manx don't want him because he's Liverpudlian, and and Liverpool fans don't want him because he's a man. And Newcastle fans won't forgive him for what he did to Shearer. So no one really wants him. <laughs> But guess, he was a, he was a he was a proper player in his day. No, he was he was. Yeah. Second question: In what year was Old Trafford built? Is it A, a nineteen hundred, B nineteen ten, or C nineteen twenty? Uh, um, I'm gonna go with the latest one, nineteen twenty. It was actually nineteen ten. Ah, uh, uh, I was I was I was questioning whether whether it was made before or after the war, but yeah, could 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 use some renovations. You know, so one of the stands is still leaking. Last time I went, so yeah, could use fixing that roof. <laughs> All right, who was the only player to miss his penalty in the two thousand and eight Champions League final win versus Chelsea? Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, fair play. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was an awful penalty, but yeah, I know. <laughs> oh. All right, next question: it, Who scored Bayern Munich's goal in the nineteen ninety nine Champions League final? Was it A. Mario Basler, B. Karsten Janka, or C. Stefan Effenberg? You know, I remember it was a free kick and it took a massive deflection, but I don't remember who took it. Um, was it Mario? It was fair play. Yeah, yeah. nice. I remember it was a free kick and took a massive deflection, but I don't remember. I don't remember exactly who took the free kick. Oh, apparently, you do. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right. Finally, after a disastrous first half of the 2018-19 season, Mourinho was sacked just before Christmas 2018. Which of these statements regarding Mourinho's reign at United is true? Is it United won in Mourinho's final derby against Man City? 
Mourinho had a better win percentage than Sir Alex Ferguson. Jesse Lingard scored the last goal of Mourinho's tenure. Mourinho bought fewer than 10 players during his tenure. Oh, what uh, what was the first option? Can you give me the, sorry, give me the options yeah. again? Uh, United won in Mourinho's final derby against Man City. Mourinho had a better win percentage than Sir Alex Ferguson. Jesse Lingard scored the last goal of Mourinho's tenure. Or Mourinho bought fewer than 10 players during his tenure. Um, well, he was there for, what, two and a half seasons. I'm going to go with the last one. Did he buy fewer than less than 10 players? It was actually... Jesse Lingard scored the last goal of Mourinho's tenure. Oh, I thought yeah. he might do that. Yeah. All right. All right. Three out of five, I think. That's very respectable, right, definitely. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do all right. We'll do all right. And the other two, I can yeah. <laughs> As long as I get let into Old Trafford, <laughs> that's the... <laughs> that's the... All right. Hey, last thing I want to ask you before you go. Um, what sort of yeah. music do you listen to? I mean, what I've been asking previously is like, who's the most listened to in Spotify, rapped Apple Music, but that was a little while back. So I just want to know who, who your yeah. artists of choice are. Oh man, I listen to like, I listen to so, such an eclectic like group kind of music. If you go through my playlist, like you would get no sense as to what kind of music this person likes. Like I love myself a little, a little bit of Elvis Presley, uh, a little bit of Michael. Um, you know, uh, I'll listen to, uh Sinatra uh so I guess I lean a little bit older um in my in my music taste but yeah if if you had to like leave me with one it would probably be Elvis Presley if I could only take one like artist's mm. music with me onto a desert island it'll probably be Elvis Presley okay cool yeah uh, which isn't it isn't exactly radiating the youthful kind of political <laughs> uh advocating but Elvis Presley is timeless mm. so I get away with that one <laughs> All right. And um, any any closing words? No, man. Just thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. And I'm uh, I'm glad I, uh, uh, you know, I, we can continue to tell the story uh, of the campaign. So if anyone's listening and is arming and eyeing about whether they should get involved, whether they have a place in politics, I would just say absolutely do it. Um, we, we could use as many of your voices as possible. Perfect. And you want to tell the people where they can find you? Yeah, uh, on Twitter is armilani underscore, I think, uh, alimilani underscore UK on Instagram. Facebook's, uh, I don't really actually have a personal Facebook anymore. It's just Ali Milani. Uh, you can find me. Uh, and yeah, you go alimilani.com has all of our stuff on it. So if you want to get involved, uh, we do have a book coming out um, soon. I'm currently in the midst of writing um, the story of the campaign as well. So look out for that uh, on all of our channels, um, which tells the whole story of the campaign. All right, perfect. Ali, you've been a great guest. I've really awesome. enjoyed this. So thanks again for joining me today. And I wish no, you all the best. No, thank you, man. It's been awesome. Take care. All the best.
Yes, yes, yes. Shout out Ali Milani. Honestly, I really enjoyed that conversation. Big up again for coming on. And I wish him all the best with the book. Also, I just want to say that was not me endorsing the Labour Party or anything like that. You know, I just thought it'd be a great story. And, you know, it was. But I will say bun the Tories. But yeah, man, on to the TV recommendation for this week. This show is called Midnight Gospel. It's a cartoon and it is a guy who runs a space cast, which is essentially just a podcast, but it goes out to different galaxies, a bit of a Rick and Morty sort of vibe there. And he goes to, he has this computer simulator and it takes him to these different uh, galaxies and he will uh, interview people for the space cast but usually it's like they they touch on certain themes so for example the first one it's about like mindfulness um and there's another one which is about death um yeah it's really interesting it's it's quite trippy as well but yeah man good show it's uh if you like rick and morty i think you'd like this although it's not that similar but yeah sick show you might want to bill it beforehand and you can find this on netflix big up everyone for listening shout outs to people that made it this far and yeah man love for all the support i want to say big up larry david shout out jürgen klopp and shout out man like a carla and rest in peace to amy winehouse safe